Good morning and welcome to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. And handling the board for us today is solar-powered John Dunn. Answering the phones is DJ Spaceship. If you want to join the conversation, you can call 813-239-9663 and DJ Spaceship will get you through to us. And you can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. Today's Wavemaker was named by Florida Trend as one of the state's most influential business leaders. Susan Glickman is a tireless advocate for policies to address the climate crisis. She has worked for more than 20 years, since the turn of this century, <laughs> in Tallahassee and with national groups like the National Resources Defense Council, the Center for Climate Integrity, and the Union of Concerned Citizens, scientists. Susan is now a consultant to the Florida Clinicians for Climate Action. That's a group that educates health professionals on the health harms of climate change. Welcome to Wavemaker, Susan. Great. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, Susan, um, it's great to have you. I met you like 15 years ago up in Tallahassee um, when I was a reporter and Charlie Crist was governor. And he hosted, hosted Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was the governor of California in Florida for a, a global uh, climate change summit. It was a big deal. These two Republican governors were going to be talking about climate change. Do you remember that? Absolutely. There was a lot of movement forward in the 2009 era when the U.S. House of Representatives passed the Waxman-Markey bill, although it did not get through the Senate. So there was a lot of action, and Charlie Crist, as Republican governor, led on that. Yeah. You have not slowed down. At all. We will be talking more about your career path <laughs> later um, in the program and the hour. But let's talk first about the op-ed that the um, Tampa Bay Times just published on May 4th. It's titled, "Here that you wrote, it's here's, here's why seawalls alone won't save Florida from climate change. Tell us about that. What's the gist of, of the op-ed that was published by the Times that you penned? So here's where we're at in Florida as far as policy related to clean energy and climate change. So imagine you walk into your bathroom and the sink is overflowing and you turn around and you grab towels off the wall. In fact, for Florida, it's about $2 billion worth of towels that they've been giving out to adapt to climate <laughs> impacts in the pipeline. But we have conveniently forgotten to actually turn the faucet off. So you cannot adapt your way out of climate change. And that really is the essence of the op-ed because there is an upper limit to the sea rise and, and for that matter, the heat that Florida can withstand and still remain economically viable because climate change goes after all the pillars of our economy. It's our agriculture, tourism, real estate, construction, ports. So um, we we're, we're already have seen a foot of sea rise since the 70s. And we have another foot baked in. So the question is, the actions we take today, today are we going to be looking at two feet, three feet, four feet, or, or what? A foot baked in, meaning it's inevitable. A foot is inevitable over the course of the next few decades. Yes, that's correct. But I guess in some ways there's progress because there was a time when a lot of elected officials, particularly Republicans, would not even acknowledge the existence of climate change or sea level rise. But now they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars, billions, billions to try to hold off the water, indicating at least that they acknowledge that there's 
an issue, but what you're saying is they're not willing to adopt the policies to try to slow it down or do something to deal with the source, right? That's right. We need policies and programs and measures that are going to keep us under the upper limit of which Florida can withstand and still remain economically viable. So you've talked about two or three feet. That's sort of the limit as, of, of what we're saying that you're, you, uh, the, in the op-ed you talk about setting like a cap of two feet. This is as much as we can withstand as two feet of sea level rise in the Tampa Bay area. Is that Well, the two feet Florida? is probably sort of debatable at some level because two feet in St. Pete is different than two feet on St. Pete Beach, right? So it, it depends. But that is what in South Florida, for instance, Broward County and, and South Florida, they've been a little bit more ahead of the curve than we have in Tampa Bay. They're adapting, they're planning for two feet of sea rise. So I, I mentioned this to you when we spoke um, yesterday, but there's a website. I don't know if you went and looked at it or not that mm-hmm. NOAA has. It's um, coast.noaa.gov. And you can plug in a certain level of sea level rise, not associated with the timeline, and see what impact it has on the coastline. So it's really super cool. And I did that. I did two feet. Tampa Bay Area, downtown Tampa actually does surprisingly well. You have some downtown St. Pete areas that are bad. Homosassa Springs does not do well. With two feet of sea level rise, Homosassa Springs, underwater, Anna Maria Island, underwater with two feet of sea level rise. So, and then you think about it, however long it takes to get to two feet, 2080, 2050, there's steps up to that where you're going to have lots of days where there's lots of flooding. So that's real then you're saying two feet pretty much is going to happen. It's real. And what people don't understand is at six inches, we start to have saltwater intrusion into our freshwater. You're starting to see even sewer systems, stormwater systems fail because you've got all the sea rise. We just had this incredible rain bomb in Fort Lauderdale where in a matter of, you know, six hours, they got, you know, a month's worth of rain. And so what did they have? They had raw sewage coming out into the streets. And this is the kind of thing that is already happening. It's very expensive and it's going to get more expensive. So it's one thing to adapt to a foot or two feet. It's quite another thing to just let this thing go on exponentially. Uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers with Janet and Tom on WMNF, and our guest is Susan Glickman, and we're talking about climate change. Uh, if you have any thoughts about it, give us a call, 813-239-9663, or you can send an email to dj at wmnf.org and let us know. Are you, are you concerned about sea level rise where you live? Do you live on Anna Maria Island? Um, are you along Hillsborough River? Are you li- Do you live near Homosassa Springs or along the beaches in, in Pinellas County? Um, give us a call and tell us, is it, are you concerned about that in the coming decades? So, Susan, what are some of the things that we should be doing? What are the solutions? Well, we need to transition to clean energy and start, uh, you know, stop all this dangerous carbon pollution. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about people starting to pay attention. So um, our, our previous governor, who's now our U.S. Senator, Rick Scott, you know, quite literally, you know, forbid the words climate change from being spoken. And then now our current governor, Ron DeSantis, has not embraced the issue of climate change, but he has, as I mentioned, handed out quite a bit of money. Most of that money comes from the federal government. I was going to say it's easier to hand out money when it 
that comes from Washington first. <laughs> exactly. But so there is a perception, so to your question, Janet, that there is something being done, that we're addressing climate change and we're not. Um, there, there is some good news. So we mentioned who's talking about it. Uh, in the Tampa Bay Partnership, which is a coalition of some of the most prominent sort of biggest business interests, more than a year ago at the second annual uh, Tampa Bay Regional Resilience Coalition Summit released uh, their economic case for resilience. And, you know, they talked about the potential for property losses, as Janet, as you're running through some of these more vulnerable areas. Um, that means we're going to have less tax revenues as we lose these areas, you know, because you're going to have property losses. They are looking at um, about $16.9 billion. So this is in the economic case for resilience for Tampa Bay from the Tampa Bay Partnership released about a year ago, almost $17 billion in property losses. That's a 2070, you know, estimation. I mean, it's really, really significant uh, what's going on here. So 2070, what seems like a long time from now, but my, my grandchildren will be younger than me. Yeah, there you go. It goes quick, right? We were all remarking how long we've all known each other in this room. So in this... And you've been working on this ever since. I don't know how you do this. But, and there has been progress made, right? I mean... Well, there is progress, and, and we're, we're going to get, get into that in a minute. When the Tampa Bay Partnership wisely did this analysis, and in that analysis, their recommendation was to uh, the importance of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So we have business leaders saying that's what we need to do. Mm -hmm. And the good news is, is there's $370 billion in the pipeline coming from the federal government for these historic investments that need to be made. And that's happening in a time where, for instance, to Solar Power John over here, the cost of solar <laughs> has come down 90% in the last decade. So we can talk about things uh, about what we can do and the cost that we couldn't have, you know, 10 years ago. So the electrification of transportation is, is obvious, um, you know, way to reduce emissions quickly. It's also uh, saves money. You know, you save about $10,000 over the life of an electric vehicle over an internal combustion engine. And they're a heck of a lot more fun to drive. We've mm -hmm. already been comparing notes on that. They are. And um, the biggest challenge, uh, I think, if you're an electric vehicle owner like, like uh, we are, is the lack of infrastructure to charge your vehicle if you're going on a long trip. Um, so what's happening on that end? Right. Uh, so that might encourage more people to buy electric vehicles because, uh, you know, right now uh, they, they call it range anxiety. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Can I drive to Miami without running out of power? Um, and... That might encourage more people, right? That's right. Well, it's happening, actually. The Tesla system was built out, you know, quickly. And there are Tesla chargers in Perry, Florida, and Arcadia, Florida. But I can't use it on my cheap Kia. Yeah. Well, that's what's getting built out now. There's a lot of EV charging infrastructure in, in this bill, and, and that's what's happening. Local governments can, you know, tap this money, and it is a huge issue. And we need to be watching out for so that we do not have yet another digital divide mm -hmm. where, because 80% of charging happens at home. So it is super important up at the front end that in multifamily that we at least get them EV ready. Because if you wait till an apartment complex is built after the fact, it cost 10 times as much. Mm -hmm. So we really need to get out in front, but there is a ton of money for EV charging infrastructure. But do we also have the infrastructure owned by the utility companies that's going to uh, be able to deliver all this extra power we're going to need? 
Well, certainly. I mean, you can, I mean, there's so many ways to deliver the power, you know, whether you have your own solar, you know, we have solar on our roof, we have 10 and a half kilowatts and we charge at home. And you'll see in coming years, things like time of use rates, because it's a lot cheaper at night. There's a ton of excess uh, energy on the grid right now at night. So they can make the rates lower. They don't do it and they haven't yet, not in Florida, but they <laughs> do in other states and it's called time of use rate. So there's a lot of things that, that we can do. And as I said, the cost of solar has come down. Right in Tampa Bay, the Great Bay distributor, the biggest Anheuser-Busch distributor in the state, got solar. It was probably seven years ago when solar was quite a bit more expensive. They put up a megawatt and a half, $2.6 million. And the savings from that improvement paid for itself in 5.15 years. So they get 25 years of free electricity for their cold storage facility. Now, my impression is, tell me if I'm wrong, that the utility companies really see solar as competition. And they're not doing the kinds of things that other states have done to make it easier. I mean, yes, the cost of installation has gone down. But you cannot share that excess power with your neighbor, for example, right? So I worked at Eckerd College for a while. They have a lot of solar. They have excess solar. They could have shared it with the city's uh, sewage treatment plant next door, but the law prevented them from doing it. So do you see any hope of changing some of these ridiculous laws that we have that are, are, are barriers to expansion? That's right. Florida is one of only four states where the law expressly prohibits anyone who's not a, you know, utility monopoly to deliver power, right? You can't sell it. You can, however, lease the power. And the utility, so in Florida, 75% of Florida is covered by investor-owned utilities, Tampa Electric, Duke, and Florida Power and Light. About 15% are municipal utilities like Lakeland and Jacksonville and Orlando, which have their own. There are some rural cooperatives. So the utilities themselves are getting more into building utility-scale solar. And I'll mention in a minute sort of the utility business model. So they like solar all right if they own and control it. They don't like it as much as the most expensive, let's say, nuclear power plant because the way it works is these investor-owned utilities get a guaranteed rate of return or a range of a rate of return um, on capital expenditures. So the more that's spent, the more they make, like waiters in a restaurant with a guaranteed tip, and they want you to get dessert and a bottle of wine, right? Because they make more money. So their incentive is on building power plants, which they put in the rate base, and then you pay for it. In addition, if everyone's noticing their bill going through the roof, it's because in Florida, we're heavily relying on gas, fossil gas, 75%. And gas prices completely jumped through the roof when Russia invaded Ukraine. And so people, they come back for uh, additional cost recovery for fuel charges. Fuel is a pass-through. They don't make money off of it. But Florida Power and Light's parent company and a subsidiary of Duke own a pipeline. So these utilities, you know, that are sort of integrated, they make money coming and going. So the incentive is on uh, selling gas at this point. And that's why they don't want you to do solar. They don't want you to have solar on your roof that you own. But our current net metering rule is they do have to credit you 
a retail rate, what mm-hmm. you pay, up to what you use. But if you generate more, to your point, Tom, than you use, they will only true you up at a wholesale rate. So it's not worth building a bigger system. Then, Which our is net a- metering rules, though, when yeah. did they changed, come about? It? When did that happen? Yeah, that was around the 2009 era. It's okay. a rule. It is not a law. It is not in statute. They could change it. So, so that was that yeah. era when you said we were making a lot of progress. That's right. Um, but as far as building solar, though, there we're like, don't we have, I, I heard in 2021, Florida surpa- surpassed North Carolina to become the third in the nation in total solar power generating capacity. Yeah, and that's utility, largely utility scale solar that they own. Okay. So they build it, they put it in the right base. And, and I'll give you a little tidbit. In Florida, if you build any kind of generation that's over 75 megawatts, that means you have to go to the Florida Public Service Commission in Tallahassee, who regulates the utilities, to see if you need the power. It's called a need determination. And I've been involved in a couple of these when they were trying to build seven coal-fired power plants at one juncture in our state. So you, if you check it out, out, every single one of these big solar farms, the utility scale solar is 74 and a half megawatts, mm-hmm. every single one of them. So that avoids going to the Public Service Commission to do a need determination. And while I want all the solar in the world, we don't want people building any kind of generation we don't need. That makes people's bills go up. Look, going back to what we were talking about earlier, where we were talking about the two feet, the um, it's one of the initiatives that you're working on, the MAC, what is the... The Upper Limit Project. Upper yeah. Limit Project. How reasonable or is two feet, we can say upper limit, all we want, two feet. But that really, what you're really talking about is slowing it. Because isn't it going to just keep on going higher and higher and higher over the decades, regardless, whatever we do? Even if we're all driving electric cars or we just, you know, turn off all of our electricity and (laughs) sit in our homes and naked in the summer and bundled up in the winter, you know? I mean... Well, we're six feet's not baked in, five feet's not baked in, four feet's not baked in, right? So that's why the decisions we make now, there are a couple unknowns, right? How quickly can we move to get away from, you know, dirty, polluting carbon pollution, basically? Um, and then the other is what's going on with the sea rise itself? We don't know about the West Antarctic ice sheets or the Arctic. We don't know about the, you know, just the feedback loop in the thir- permafrost. This is something that has kept me up at night for 20 years, which is, you know, as the, this permafrost thaws, it's releasing this incredibly potent methane. Methane is 86 times more potent than carbon emissions. We're releasing it right now from landfills where we ignorantly, you know, put food waste and other items that could be, you know, used and or disposed of differently. And we're putting off methane and it's incredibly potent. We're also seeing a lot of methane from oil and gas operations and leaks there. So we've got to go get the big stuff first. And so it is worth doing. It is worth working to keep us under that upper limit because we do have time and we do have the technology. We've had that for a long time. And of course, that's been squashed by either, you know, sort of nefarious uh, sources or just misinformation that's out there. Um, and we'll talk about that in a minute because that's what's happened. The fossil fuel industry, uh, you know, has put out misinformation for decades and slowed the progress because we could have started this 25, 30 years ago. 
Mexico. Um, we got an email from Pete in Indian Shores, and he says, I don't see much change here yet. I've lived along the beaches in Pinellas County in the heart of the beaches for the last 40 years. Other than the civil engineers replenishing the sand on the beaches, I don't quite see the intercoastal side going through any high water levels. Is that comparable to the ocean? Also, the amount of earth minerals to build one electric car's battery fig- configuration is obscene. I'll get excited when they stop polluting the planet mining for these batteries. So two points. One is he's not seeing much change on Pinellas County, but also what about those batteries? I mean, it seems like every time we create a have a solution to a problem, we create another pro- problem. Yeah. And I mean, it's certainly <laughs> a challenge. And I know that just in the last couple of days, that the G7 President Biden signed some agreements with Australia. You know, I mean, they're very conscious of this. They're also conscious of the politics with China sort of getting out in front and kind of owning it all and holding the rest of the world hostage. So, I mean, we've got to put our best, um, you know, sort of creative hats. But it's not like, I mean, you know, that internal combustion engines aren't a problem from the battery or disposing of just the parts of the car. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, both electric vehicles the answer and... answer is you know, ride a bike. Yeah, the bike or ride a bike and walk. That's actually <laughs> what I thought when, when they said that. You know, I, I went to the University of Texas at Austin. I went there, and you guys will appreciate this, because I read a magazine article about what a great music town it was, and, and still is. But, John, we were there at a, at, a, at a much better time. But in 1965, so speaking of famous Texans, Lyndon Baines Johnson, President of the United States, three weeks after his inauguration, said this generation is altering the composition of the Earth's atmosphere by burning fossil fuels. So we have known about this for a really long time. Mm-hmm. We've known about it before then. Uh, but no one can make an excuse that the world didn't know when the President of the United States said something. And so immediately, the fossil fuel industry starts with the misinformation and, you know, no, it's not really happening or, you know, it's not us. And so that's really the, the, the crime. I mean, I also worked, I know we're going to talk a little bit more about sort of my journey but I worked uh, with the campaign for tobacco-free kids. And we saw the tobacco industry doing some of the same tactics about misinforming people about, you know, tobacco's role in, in causing cancer. So here we are. We now have more technologies. We have the ability to move more quickly. And then we have this funding uh, coming down. So we've got to do everything we can to avoid the worst implications. I wonder if some of this is just a human tendency to not want to change very much. Um, Everybody sees the world the way it is and they just kind of accept it and and can't imagine it in any other way. I read a fascinating story in the New York Times. I think it was just last week about Norway. All the new cars there are electric vehicles, and they've already seen an impact. Uh, the, the, the skies are cleaner, and, and the cities are quieter, which is, was mm-hmm. not something I was anticipating. Electric vehicles are quiet. People are always amazed when they get in my car and it, how mm. quiet mm-hmm. everything is. And you compare that to some of these big trucks that are so loud. Mm. Uh, so there are side benefits to some of these things. We could have quieter cities. Well, really health. So one of the groups you mentioned that I work with is the Florida Clinicians for Climate Action. They're part of a network, the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health. Uh, I think there's 30 or so affiliates around the country. Climate change is already harming people's health. And whether that's mosquito-borne diseases, I just saw a, you know, a Climate Central report on mosquito-borne diseases and mosquito season. I mean, hello, warmer, wetter weather is going to bring you more mosquitoes. It's just that simple. We've got dengue fever and Zika, and that's just one. Asthma, you know, and so forth. Heat 
heats. I mean, we could do all the entire two shows on heat. Um, the mayor of Miami-Dade County, Mayor Daniela Levine Cava, appointed the first chief heat officer in the world. And they set up a task force and did workshops. And in December, we released uh, recommendations uh, for that at the summit in Tampa Bay two weeks ago. I organized a panel on heat. I mean, this is a problem for all of our outdoor workers, right? Our construction. We've got one of the most expensive road projects going on on the Howard Franklin Bridge. I mean, it's hard. We're unemployment at 1.9%, so it's very hard to people to work. Who wants to work outside in that heat or elderly Pregnant women, if you're exposed to heat, that can carry through to kidney problems, you know, to the fetus. And so you have a whole world of problems. I believe that when people understand the the health problem, it will help them understand how climate change impacts them. We got a couple of emails and calls. Um, Mike, I'm going to get to you in just a minute. And um, if you would like to join the conversation, you can call us at 813-239-9663 or send an email to dj at wmnf.org. Susan, um, we got an email from Gary Gibbons who asks, um, last year didn't FPL, Florida Power and Light, try to get a statute passed uh, that would have destroyed net metering and only a veto from DeSantis saved us? Is that bad idea coming back to our supermajority legislature? Well, you are correct, Gary. Uh, last year, a bill passed that would have gutted the net metering rule. And Explain the net metering yeah, rule. Yeah, so the net metering rule is where you, the utilities, up to two megawatts, which is what you'd have on a shopping center, they have to credit you a retail rate. The retail rate is what you pay. So it's a so one for one. you get a one. discount on your electricity that you're buying from them because you're using solar. So. Well, it's a one for one credit. So okay. up to what you use. But okay. if you generate any more energy than you're using at your, you know, where the solar is, then it goes back onto the grid, but you just get credited what you would consider a wholesale rate or they okay. call avoided cost. So he did veto it because along the process, uh, there was a poison pill put in that. There were some rumors that it was, you know, these utilities sort of get along at some level, but sometimes they don't get along at that it was a poison pill to kind of kill it, which was it gave them unfettered, you know, ability to just come in and say, we have these lost revenues. So with electric bills going through the roof, Florida Power and Light bought uh, the Panhandle bought Gulf Power and their rates have absolutely skyrocketed. So people in the Panhandle were complaining a lot and that's why he vetoed that bill. And is that coming back this session? Or? Well, this session just ended, so it did not come back this session. Okay. Um, and let's see, we got a call. Let's go to Mike. Mike. Mike in Tampa, you're on the line. Yes, thanks very much. Uh, with regard to a previous email you read, I stepped away from my radio for a second, but I don't think you answered his question because I think he said something that's erroneous. Apparently, there are good data that show that on the Gulf of Mexico and Tampa Bay, we have already started to experience an increased level of sea level rise. Yeah, and Mike, yeah. I, 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 I agree with you. I, I feel like we've seen more flooding, um, rainy day or sunny day flooding and that sort of thing along the beaches. That, that was the email from Pete. So, Pete, you're probably still listening and is that what you're talking about? He said he lives on Indian Rock Beach and hasn't seen any difference. Yeah, and it might be hard for the naked eye to observe. I mean, there's real hard data on that. And I would suggest that a future show or, or your speaker today report that. In fact, there was a, a well-known article in the New York Times or something about that about recently, about the actually observed sea level rise on the Gulf Coast has been pretty rapid in the last 30 to 50 years. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And they do it with tide gauges. And, you know, I hear this a lot again. I've been working on this issue for more than two decades and people always say it looks the same to me. Well, it isn't the same. Yeah. And, and they have tide the gauges. Yeah. Yes. We live in a cottage built in 1940 by the Cuesta family, as in Cuesta Ray Cigars. So it's the oldest structure in Bel Air Beach. Very, you know, but feel very pleased to get to, you know, be stewards of this property. But until it's, it's underwater. Until it's not there. So we ride across <laughs> the street from the Gulf of Mexico when there were no, you know, multi-million dollar houses across the street. It, it absolutely, you know, it sort of tears me up. I mean, it's so immoral that we are altering the climate of the planet and really kind of destroying the safety net we have for our grandchildren and their children so that ExxonMobil and Tampa Electric and Florida Power and Light can make money. Thanks for the call, Mike. Um, we've also got, um, let's see, Andy in Dunedin. Andy, Andy, you're on the line. What's on your mind? Good day. I've got a couple of points I want to make real quick on uh, solar and uh, electric cars. Me and my wife live in Dunedin. We've had solar on our roof for quite a few years, and uh, we make more energy than we use, which is nice. Um, the thing about it is Duke has always charged us between 9 and $13, basically for administration, reading the meters and whatnot. And people need to also understand, if they don't know this, that our lovely governor, Gabe Duke, uh, the go-ahead to charge everybody a $30 minimum on their electric, no matter how much they're making or not making. And if you're going to invest in solar, you need understand that your panels need to be facing basically due south otherwise you're not going to create all the energy that you would like to and when you're making an investment in solar you probably want to try to knock your bill out completely it's just not worth it i think to save 20 30 40 percent on your bill um and as far as the electric cars go uh there was a good uh, there was a good thing on pbs a while back on the news when they had the whole trip with the anxiety <laughs> of the infrastructure and where they could plug in, where they couldn't plug in, what their mileage was. And I'm wondering, did anybody ever think with all the internal combustion engines on the road, why we wouldn't also come up with biofuels to power our internal combustion engines, which would help, you know, because we have so many vehicles on the road, it would help, you know, mm -hmm. With everybody trying to, you know, think about trading them in, you could just switch to biofuel and an internal combustion engine. And it seems like that would be part of the solution. If not Andy, thanks for the call. I want to ask Susan what she thinks about. What do you think about biofuels? Yeah, in the 2009 era, there was a fair amount of effort to do that. We are in an agricultural state, and there would be ways to sort of cut that, especially in things like aviation fuel. You know, in shipping and aviation, those are two areas where we really need a lot of progress. Um, for the most part, as uh, Mark Jacobson from Stanford just wrote in his book, No Miracles Needed, we have about 95% of what we need. So in vehicles that, you know, aren't, don't have electric available now, you could use biofuels, yard waste. I mean, there's a lot that we can do. Um, I'm spending a lot of time around just waste issues in general. I mean, you can use sewage uh, to power, you know, the wastewater treatment plant. I mean, you, there's ways that you can, um, you know, take advantage of 
other things, right. uh, biofuels, be it yard waste, for instance, that is something that can be put in a peroxilis uh, process and be made a biochar, which is then a soil amendment. And what, we got to do it all. What's your, your take on all these businesses? You talk about how there are businesses that are interested in um, climate change and understand the or the urgency of it, but creating their zero carbon footprint, their n- neutral carbon footprint, like airlines saying that they're trying to do that, you know, um, and telling you what flights that you can take that are going to be more uh, green. Or even now when I plug in a route on my Google Maps, it tells me what route is the greener route to go. Um, but what do you think about that, that carbon neutral um, impact? Is that doable? Well, we have to watch out for greenwashing. So, you know, the idea is that you can buy your way out of a problem. So you take a flight and then you, you know, put some money on it. And then all of a sudden they plant two trees somewhere, right? So, I mean, you know, it's better than not doing anything. It is a global problem. It's one of the complications. I've worked on a lot of different issues over the years. And there's nothing quite like climate change because it's perceived to be in the far distant future, which it's not. Not, It's also a global problem. So it's real easy. And I think you were alluding to this earlier, Tom, you know, it's easier to just out of sight, out of mind. And it's like, oh, that's China and India's problem. Well, if Florida were a country, we would have like the 16th largest economy. What we do matters. We move markets. Um, one of the, you mentioned earlier that I was very honored in 2018 to be included in the inaugural set of Florida's most influential business leaders, given that I've only ever done nonprofit work. But that's because the energy issue is moving markets. Florida is the second largest market in the country for electric vehicles. So we Hmm. we matter. I mean, it's even like textbooks, right? Big states matter and they dictate the textbooks everyone else gets because they're big states. And that's what we could have done if what Governor Christ had set into motion, we could have been, you know, just a hot spot for clean tech and solar manufacturing and all of that. Instead, you know, that's not we're sort of in in the rear, but we have invested more in solar, largely at utility scale solar, but even people's homes in part because it's come down uh, in 2016. An amendment was passed that abated the taxes on solar. And so the leasing companies came in. So a lot of people with solar are leasing that solar equipment, which actually is legal. Let's go to the um, uh, another call. We've got John in Port Ritchie. John um, in Port Ritchie, you're on the line. What's on your mind? Hey, thanks for, hey, thanks for the show. Um, about the EV vehicles, I know a lot. the cars sit around a lot of the time just sitting out in the sun. I was thinking... Why not put little solar collectors on there to help yep. charge the batteries? I mean, even if you get a couple hour charge out of it, that's less than you have to hook up to the grid or something to take two hours that from them. Yeah, they also have talked about making parking lot solar solar panels, solar charging stations, so that when you go to Publix, you're like, or wherever you are. Absolutely. You know, or the roads. As you're driving, you're charging as you're driving. What about that? Are and, we- and there are some vehicles yeah. that have solar panels on it. For example, recreational vehicles, a lot of those. But they, I don't know. I think that's a great idea. Is, it's going to be integrated all over. I mean, we're going to see so much change. First off, people, buildings could be built out and, of and, solar but panels. people aren't driving as many cars. And, and Janet, of course, you were at Tampa. Walking bike, walking bike. Yeah, you or, were at Tampa Airport yeah. for quite a long time. And I remember hearing, reading that at the big renovation and when you all, uh, you know, expanded, that you went in thinking you need X parking. But then all of a sudden we had Uber and Lyft, right? Oh, yeah. so and then curbs, they didn't yeah. need as much parking, right? 
right. It's all about curves. So life is changing. Younger people are, don't care about cars in the same way that our generations did as we grew up. So we're going to have all of the above. These electric vehicles are little power plants. They're like computers on wheels. And you're going to charge at night in your home, let's say in the suburbs, and you're going to drive to downtown and everybody's going to plug in and you're going to plug off, you know, run or off pl- that energy. Yeah. And will you even plug in? Maybe you won't plug in. Maybe you'll just park. Like you'll charge, you'll be like, like the way we now put our phones or I put my right. my Apple Watch on a little thing, you know. Yeah, as my, opposed to plugging it in. I don't That's plug right. it in. I just set it on something. So why wouldn't your parking spot be made out of something like exactly. that? And you just go park on it. So we've got, um, let's get another, go to DeAndre in Tampa. DeAndre in Tampa. And if you want, want to call, the number is 813-239-9663 or send an email to dj at wmnf.org. Hey, DeAndre, you're on the line. What's on your mind? Hey, well, a couple things. Like, I'm totally disgusted by the effects of fossil fuels and climate change, but there are, like, two uh, products that I think when, like, investigating YouTube um, or, or uh, that are just outstanding, I don't see them on the market yet, and they probably have, well, at least one of them should have been by now um, over the past 20 years, and, and that's uh, hybridizing existing internal combustion engine vehicles with uh, uh, powered motors, like either in the differential or in the wheels, wheels built with powerful motors already there where you just have to connect it and the right kind of battery uh, to your automobile. That sounds like a lot of engineering to me, DeAndre. And (laughs) But you're, you're talking about having the wheels be a little engines? Yeah, well, that's been going on for about 20 years, actually. It's oh. been on. Uh, so, and then uh, these motors are also being found uh, to, to be able to be uh, set horizontally across a roof and then power homes via wind with the updraft going up the channels. Uh, the, huh. uh, Interesting. Uh, uh, so, you know, there and then as well, methanol, which is gas made of uh, um, alcohol, which is so far as I understand, it's not polluting. Methanol? Pro- methanol is produced and by uh, uh, down shrubbery, like trees, leaves, grass. All right. Naturally. Things. What do you think about that, Susan, as a um, – thanks for the call, DeAndre. As sounds a- like another form of biofuel. Yeah, it is. I mean, for me, it's the whatever's the lowest hanging fruit. Where are you going to get the most bang for your buck? That's why I talk about methane out of landfills. That's a perfect example of something we can sort of do something about. So, I mean, I'm for all those things being explored, but with wind and solar and, you know, hydro and some of the, you know, just more well, um, you know, developed technologies, like we have that. So we've got 95% of the solutions. So let's like keep moving. And I think if some folks want to be working on, you know, putting engines in the tires or, or whatever. Go you know, for it. Go, yeah. go for it. We got another email from Pete who says, why isn't there a solar panel on my cell phone so I can get a quick charge from our sun as opposed to plugging in everywhere? So um, true story. I have a little piece of like swag from Tico mm-hmm. that is a solar powered cell phone charger mm-hmm. and you just take it and you put it in your dashboard of your car and it's just powered solar your charger is sol- is solar That's powered, right. and then you just plug your phone into it. Absolutely, have that. So Charlie is Treasure Island. Um, you're on the line. Let's hear from you, Charlie. Um, I hope, wonder Hi. if you're going to tell us whether or not you're seeing any sort of sea level rise where you live. Uh, well, actually, I had a comment about uh, electric vehicles. Okay, that's good. Go for that. 
Uh, I've been driving electric for six or seven years now. I've also got solar panels on my house. And um, some of the uh, earlier callers were skeptical, and uh, it's understandable because it's a big shift. The the auto industry is going to change more in the next few years than it has in the last hundred years. Uh, and one thing that we hear is all this, you know, proposals for anything but electric, uh, hydrogen, biofuels. Uh, why can't we do that? Well, uh, there may be a place for some of those technologies, uh, as you mentioned, but as you also mentioned, we have the technology we need right now, uh, Going electric, electric vehicles are far more efficient than any of those other options. Uh, the technology is very. We, we have the developing. way; we don't have the will. Exactly. That is, but yes, exactly. And, well, most of the uh, car manufacturers aren't going to make internal combustion engines anymore. I mean, right. that's yeah. based on all their announcements. So I appreciate everything you've just said. Yeah, Charlie, They're, thanks for the call. We this is an, an, an interesting email about just the whole etiquette of um, so it's from Charles Parker about the etiquette of EV charging and electric vehicles. Why do so many EVs plug in when they go three miles to work or to Whole Foods? Every time I go to the store, I don't buy a quart of gasoline. <laughs> well, because they've got a, a convenient parking space exactly. that they're trying to, trying to use. Uh, I, I see uh, a lot <laughs> of internal combustion engines in electric parking we went for an event the other evening uh you know where city hall is and the hyatt or you know downtown excuse me hilton right hilton downtown and uh yeah there were non-evs parked in the in the parking so not um, right um we got uh jimmy um, from saint pete jimmy from saint pete you're on the line what's on your mind hello Hi. um i really like your station thank you and um i just wanted to know what are they going to do with the uh, old batteries from the electric vehicles when they go bad? What, what happened? Yeah, there's a great opportunity to recycle uh, old batteries, and all the materials in there are reusable. They have a lot of value, so I guarantee you they will be recycled, and that's happening in this, um, you know, the federal dollars coming down to set up uh, recycling for that. So because they have value, they, that will, you know, be managed that way. Now, on the subject of electric vehicles, um, I understand there is a, a, a new electric ferry that's being introduced in Norway. Um, what are the chances of that coming to Florida? Wow, good question. So um, I've actually been um, opening some doors around the state for an electric ferry company called Hike. That's H-Y-K-E. Time just put them, we used to say Time Magazine, but Time just put them on the 22, uh, 200 best inventions. And they were one of a couple companies that were selected by Paris to provide transportation up the Seine River uh, during the Olympics. So um, they're not ferries, electric ferries have not started to be manufactured here. Uh, but this particular company, and just again, I guess I've been helping them, um, they are interested in opening up the Florida market. I was on the phone yesterday with a staff person at the FT, you know, Department of Transportation uh, to talk, to look at this uh, funding opportunity to come in and do manufacturing here. It's a different mousetrap. Thinking, we're talking EVs, think Tesla, like a ferry, not that 300 person, you know, mm -hmm. fueled by like what, 20 diesel. people or something? Yeah, it's right. It's, and there would just be yeah. a bunch of them going back and forth. That's right. 
right. So okay. it's every five minutes. So you're not checking the schedule. Gotcha. And it's and you also because there's It's like going um, on. It's a small world. Or something. That's right. It'll be largely <laughs> autonomous. So you only then need a safety agent and not you know a full a driver. Blown, right driver. So that's going to reduce the cost. So it's going to be fun for tourists. It's going to be actual a, a way to get people to their jobs. And then there's another element called the last mile, which is for delivering um, you know supplies and things because it's hard to get some big giant truck in the brick streets of Ebor, right? Uh, but you could take vegetables from Terra, Terra Sierra, right, in, in Manatee and just go as the crow flies. Um, there already is, uh, Congresswoman Kathy Castor got uh, some serious money to come because they're looking at a more traditional ferry to take people from eastern Hillsborough County to McDill Air Force Base. And I know the Hillsborough County Commission, uh, you know, did a study, uh, but that's not electric yet. But we are working on that, Tom, and it's just a matter of will. We've been talking a lot about um, what sort of changes need to be made, and then and you've also mentioned uh, uh, the federal dollars that are available. Can you give us just some highlights? What are some five key things in that that you'd like that are going to make a difference? Because that was the first climate change, change uh, legislation ever passed, right? Yep. No, it's historic, and it's it's really. I mean, we should just all be you know thanking our stars uh, that we have this opportunity in this moment. So the first thing uh, that I like to talk about is the in the around the country the top sixty seven uh, metropolitan statistical areas are each getting a million dollars in from the EPA in climate pollution reduction grants. So in Florida, we're getting five of those. So this is the first time. And again, where we started is we're adapting. We're putting those towels on the floor, you know, to so mop up the water. So what are we supposed to do with that $5 million? We're going to do robust plans that are going to give us the guideposts and the roadmap to get us to zero emissions. I mean, okay. you know, the, the president has a goal of zero, net zero, you know, by 2035, right? Mm-hmm. So we've got these goals out there. This will be the first time. So the Tampa Bay Regional Planning Council, um, the city of Jacksonville, Miami-Dade County, East Central Florida. So that is the large populations mm-hmm. in our state. So that's the roadmap. That's going to set up the communities to get implementation dollars so they can actually do what's in the plan. Okay. So, so we need everybody, in particular, we need the business community to say, this is it. Right. This is our moment to get on track, to get our plans. And then and once, anything else, yeah. uh, the plans, what else? Anything well, else? Well, all the, I mean, just then all comes the money. So, um, you know, there's. Well, we talked about EV charging infrastructure. EV so charging that's something infrastructure. that's in there. What that's else right. is in there? Well, 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 grid resilience, the Department of Energy, so that we can be islandable. So when the grid fails, which it does, um, we can have critical infrastructure. I worry a lot about wastewater treatment plants because when they go down, then we get sewage in our okay. bodies of water. And so we can avoid that. So we need to begin to island so our critical infrastructure. Anything else? That's right. All of it. I mean, you know, water, storm systems. So we do have to adapt. And there's money for is that. There money, and is there money for things like what managed retreat or anything like that? Or? Not so much in there. This is more about the greenhouse gas reduction piece okay. as well. Um, so for instance, for low income, for the lowest of income, there's $14,000 worth of upgrades. And part of what happened- $14,000 worth of upgrades for, for, for the a lowest, household. For a household, for the lowest income. That's right. So new okay. appliances. So, I mean, okay, yeah. got to energy efficient appliances and all that. Okay, all yeah. right. That's yeah, interesting. That's right. And then the solar, there's a 30% solar tax credit 
right. And what's most interesting is it used to be only for people who could take a tax credit, right? So that left out nonprofits. And so also, again, lower income people that may not have an appetite, you know, for a tax credit. So now nonprofits like the where we sit right now and, and houses of worship uh, can get solar. And if you buy American panels, it's a 40 percent buy down. Wow. Okay. So another thing I'd mention, I'm on the board of Solar Energy Loan Fund, SELF. They're the only green bank in the state of Florida. They're also what's known as a CDFI, a community development finance institution. So they get some of that bank money. There's $27 billion coming down to CDFIs and green banks. So that's affordable financing. So that's important. Um, We've got Let's go to the phones. If you want to give us a call and you're just tuning in, we've got Susan Glickman, um, and she is um, a, a, the foremost advocate for um, uh, policies to address climate change in, in Florida. Our final seven minutes our of the final show. final seven minutes. Let's go to Dave in Sarasota. Dave, you are on the line. What's on your mind? And if you want to call, 813-239-9663 or send an email to dj at wmnf.org. Okay, Dave. No, yeah, what's um, up? I was wondering, is uh, methane gas the same thing as natural gas? And the other question I want to ask is, um, they have any more work on the uh, Florida rail, high-speed rail? Oh, that ship sailed with uh, Rick Scott when he turned back that federal money. There is a private endeavor called Brightline, um, which I'm glad to see it, but it's it's quite expensive, actually. And I've ridden on the Brightline in southeast Florida. They are connecting up the southeast Florida part to Orlando, yeah. and they will come over to here, yes. to Tampa. It's and not really as high speed as the high speed rail you see in Europe. That's correct. The, no, the, but it's pretty cool. Level and yeah, it is, but yes, it's, it's, it's quite expensive. So it's not something people are going to ride to work every day, like 20 dollars each way. And again, I appreciate it and I'm happy it's there, but we had an opportunity in Florida and Governor Rick Scott sent money back, which went to New York and California. And then, you know, his, his friends, quite literally his campaign manager, uh, was working with Brightline. What was your, the other question was methane is methane. Yeah. Well, fossil gas, what we call natural gas, which is a great marketing uh, campaign, uh, is primarily made up of methane. So it's, it's the same thing. That's why I say fossil gas, because when you say natural gas it sounds good but it is it, it it quite literally under the best of circumstance gas is half the emissions of coal but when they frack the gas hydraulic fracturing which is where we're getting most of the gas that can be as bad as coal in in a life cycle analysis all right let's go to uh brian and clearwater brian and clearwater you're on the line hey i just had a comment uh you're uh Participant had mentioned to trust her that the recycling programs for batteries, and I, you know, these companies are. It's great that they are allowed to, uh, you know, flex their ideas and come up with new technologies. But you know, those minerals they they rape the earth to take them out of the ground. And are they all recyclable? Like she says, I don't really think so. And I, the fact that the infrastructure isn't there to me yet is very concerning when the industry is clearly taking off, not to mention that the prolific use of rechargeable batteries on now bicycles and scooters all over every city. And I just doubt, you know, I I fear that those infrastructures are not there and the policy requires the recycling. So that's my comment and concern. Thanks. Thanks for calling. Well, I do. I mean, I agree. It's a concern. I I just know that, um, you know, just in the market, if something has a value, 
people are more likely to build an industry around it. And then there is funding uh, to do that. So that's why I say trust. And I don't mean to be glib because I think the potential for the problem is real. But then we also have to be realistic about what's an old car battery do or what is, right. uh, you know, other parts. The fact of the matter is the EVs just have so many fewer moving parts yeah. that it will be easier to sort of manage that process right. of it because it's it's just less, uh, you know, risky materials. Yeah. There's less bad about it for sure. Let's just, this will be our last call. This is Alan in Palm Har- Harbor. Alan, you're on the line. What's on your mind? You, you have a question about the grant. Yes, thank you for taking my call. Um, the $14,000 grant for the efficiency upgrade, I'm wondering how you or where you get in contact with somebody to to uh, kind of guide you through it. Okay, sure. Alan, thank you. You know, it's interesting you say kind of guide you through it. I'm very concerned because these grants, whether you're going for a big $100 million grant or or something that's more individualized, they're kind of complicated, you yeah. know. So that's something that, that a lot of us advocates are working on. And I will make sure that that information for the last caller is here at the station. And I'll send a link to where, you know, those particular programs are. Oh, we can put it yeah. on. Um, we'll post it when we post about the show, the podcast. Perfect. perfect. So, I'll give you um, some links. You can go ahead and, and come check out our website um, in about three hours and it'll be up. Great. So, okay. no, I think it, it, there's such a need for all the civic organizations and, uh, you know, houses of worship to make sure that we get this information out there for people. There's a $4,000 tax credit for used electric vehicles. And I mentioned I'm on the board of Solar Energy Loan Fund and I've been really conducting kind of an analysis of how we can finance those used electric vehicles for low-income people. Someone mentioned earlier, most people don't drive more than 40 you know, miles in a day. And a used electric vehicle is a great value because you don't care as much about the mileage as you do with an internal combustion engine. So there's still a lot of life. Uh, we don't um, have a big stockpile yet of used electric vehicles, but companies like Hertz, Hertz has got a huge electric vehicle you know, sort of fleet and they're ordering hundreds and hundreds of Polestars and GMs. And so I'm trying to develop a pipeline from these car rental companies, right, who are going to have a lot of used electric vehicles. They can take the $4,000 tax credit in their dealer, and then we can finance that for for people who are low income. And that's a game changer. It's really interesting because even though my car only has an 80 or 90 mile uh, range, um, I use it mostly just drive around town. And and you'd be amazed uh, how few miles you really put on your car every day and you can charge it overnight and and it's ready to go the next day. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we just, you know, we've got to be problem solvers here. You know, there's not one single problem. And that's one of the difficulties with climate change. There isn't one answer. And we are instant gratification people and we want to be able to say, oh, nuclear or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, except the nuclear power plant that Georgia, that just got built in Georgia is $35 billion and completely ridiculously over budget and over scheduled. It ain't the answer and no country in the world knows what to do with the nuclear waste. But if we, we, we accept that there's going to be hundreds of solutions, right, in how we, you know, stop putting, you know, or Organics, usable produce into our landfills. Or like start with that. More efficient uh, uh, things in your in your house. A, a more efficient um, insulation, right? Yeah. Yes. Washing machines, Lots of refrigerants. That's right. Add up. Weather it's, stripping around. Yeah. 
makes better a big refrigerators. That's right. Uh, a lot of know, little things. Better washers and dryers and yeah. Well, we appreciate you being here, Susan. It was a great show, and you you certainly <sighs> have been an advocate for a long time on this front, and uh, it's, you're always a, a wealth <laughs> of knowledge. And if people have questions on the subject, are there websites you can send them to? Yeah, FloridaClinicians.org is a good place to start. And I want to appreciate not only you and your show, but WMNF. And I know there is a campaign now going on to match the match, which right. is um, a, an endowment, endowment for this keep, radio yes. station. So important in our community, and it really doesn't exist many other places. So I just want to put a plug in for everybody. Go to WMNF.org and, and contribute to that uh, uh, Meet the Match campaign. Yeah. Next month, we'll be uh, begging for money. To yeah. keep the station but it's not on the too, air. It's not too soon, soon to give. Give now. Yeah. Um, stay tuned. Up next is going to be Harrison Nash with three hours of fantastic music. And that was right after the um, NPR headline news. This is WMNF Tampa. Tampa.